Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you today. Well, welcome to College Football Championship Weekend. Yes, yes. Okay, I got to ask a question. Let's want to see what, what kind of hearts we have here today. How many of you Carolina people will be rooting for Clemson? Okay, how many? Well, I didn't say boo. Okay, let me give you your opportunity. How many of you will not be rooting for Clemson? Yeah, wow, that's, that's heartless. Man, that is heartless. You know, well, I'm only teasing you because I'll tell you what, I was dancing around the living room yesterday when the Ravens lost to the Titans. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. If we can't put Tom Brady in the Super Bowl, we're not going to let anybody from Baltimore to get there. You know, that's what I'm saying. Keep it off the East Coast. Let's just do something else. Um, it's great to see all of you. We're entering into our seven days of prayer. Uh, uh, we start today. Let me encourage you. On all of your seats, you've got little prayer guides. And a lot of us have a hard time with prayer. I get it. I have difficulty. What should I pray? Whose name should I be using when I pray? How do I, how do, I do it? This is a little roadmap about the, taking the Our Father and breaking it down and understanding how to pray. Why are we doing this? We're doing this so that this coming new year, or this new year that we're in, that we'll experience God's best in our lives. And we want to align our will with his purposes. So let me encourage you, every day this week, what we're going to be doing is, well, we invite everybody to come at 6 o'clock in the morning. And I, I know I've already saw one guy lean over, that ain't happening, there's no way I'm, I'm doing that. Well, we are streaming live, so if you, want to, if you can't get here, that's, that's understandable. But we'll get together here, we'll do a little bit of worship, have a small devotional, and then we're going to pray for all the prayer requests that we've gotten over the last two weeks. We just lay them out on the stage, and everybody that's here will grab one of them and pray over them. Multi I mean, your prayer requests will get prayed over by multiple people. So, um, and we'll do that Monday through Friday at 6 a.m. for one hour, and then on Saturday we'll, we'll allow everybody to sleep in a little bit, and we'll do it at 9 a.m. here at Crosstown to finish out our week of prayer. So I encourage you, in one of the ways to get involved in this, maybe you take this little prayer guide and you do it with your kids, or you do it at home, or while you're in your car, an opportunity for you to, it'll even tell you like, okay, who should I be praying for? Um, it, it helps you line it all out. It has our schedule in it. Uh, let me encourage you to do that. Also, at the end of our service, we have our expressions time. And that's when you get an opportunity to take everything that you've heard, kind of throw out the stupid things I've said that weren't right, and, but take all the God things in. Because, you know, nobody's perfect at this. And then you, you, you kind of take it and you and God have a conversation. And that's when we have communion and we have time of prayer time. Let me encourage you. We have prayer requests over there that you could fill out and pin to the cross. We'll take those and begin praying over them starting tomorrow morning. If you forget to do that, you can also download our app and you can put in a prayer request through our app. But don't let this week just go by. Join us and be a part of, of kind of presenting our hearts, our desires and our emotions and our dreams to God and allow him to, to work with them. So we started last week about reimagining last week. And we were talking about how our lives We've kind of lost some imagination in our lives in the fact that our, our lives seem to operate like old mixtapes, that the way that we responded in the past is the way that we respond today to situations. 
we were just like an old song that reminds us of old memories, that we begin to envision our lives working out the same way that it's always worked out. We don't, don't have new music. We don't have something that's been added to our playlist. You know, raising teenage girls, and during that time iTunes was the only way to stream stuff, it was always interesting because they used my account that they would buy songs and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm getting some like hip hop song will pop up on most recently added to my playlist. Some, I don't know, Snoop Doggy Dog, some P. Diddy, some LaCrucius, so I don't know, Limp Biscuit something, you know, something with a biscuit with jelly, I don't know. I mean, but it would be all this music would all of a sudden, and I'd listen to it. You know, because it was like, okay, I want to kind of stay up with what my kids are listening to. And it's like, all right, that's fresh. And I think God wants us to realize that there's something fresh for our playlist. Is that we're kind of locked in that this is how life is going to go. And we we can't imagine it working out any different. Or maybe um, you've started adding maybe like a a vain imagination to your life. Is that you've gone to some of those cultural reaches that tell you, you know, wash your face, look in the mirror, and tell you yourself you're an awesome human being. You know, that works out for about six months, you know, because uh, I have to be honest with you, that wouldn't work a week with me, because the human being I see looking back at me, no matter if he has a clean face or not, I just see other things in there. So sometimes we'll try to, you know, if I get a facelift, if I get rid of my uh, chicken neck, never knew what chicken neck was before I turned 60. And you're here sitting here and you're 35 and you're like, what the heck's chicken neck? Don't worry, when you turn 60, all of a sudden there's this, this whole thing that you do in the mirror, pulling your face. And it's like, what is that all about? It's like you get this little chicken neck. You know, so we get lifted, tucked, uh, uh, Botoxed and all this other stuff. We go to the gym. We, I heard that it's not six-pack abs anymore. There are now eight-pack abs. Am I right about that? You can have eight-pack abs? What? what? I don't even have a six-pack ab. I've got like a twofer, you know, but eight, all these things that we think that we need to do in order for our lives to reimagine being better. If I just lose 20 pounds, people will like me. I'll feel better about my life. And those are all good things possibly for our lives. But if we're really basing our future on them, if I date this guy, if I have this relationship, that if I get out of this relationship, my life's going to be so much better. And God wants us to base our future on an imagination that comes from something bigger than just what's around us. And, and I know that you're, you may be here today and you poo-pooing all this imagination stuff. If you're Mr. Bible Belt, you're here, um, and you're like, imagination, that sounds like psychology, you know, and we don't do psychology, we just preach the Bible. Well, l- let me just tell you about the power of imagination. Um, let me remind you that not one heinous crime or altruistic good has ever been performed without it first passing through the imagination. Nobody has committed a terrible crime that they didn't first commit in their minds. Nobody did any good that would possibly change the outcome of another person's life without first imagining that act taking place in their heads. 
The imagination is very much a biblical principle. It's very much a biblical idea, and God is very concerned about how we use our imaginations, particularly how we think about our future. Listen to what Jesus talks about imagination. He was talking to a crowd um, that was a I-didn't-do-it crowd. This is the crowd that, well, as long as it's not in the real world of concrete action, it doesn't really exist. That imagination, poo-poo on imagination. So Jesus was dealing with a people, with a group of people who are all about, you know, as long as it's, you know, in the world of reality, but imagination is not the world of reality. So Jesus responds to them and says this. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is saying, he's like, no, what's going on in your imagination? Though it may not be the same, you know, we can't say that they're exactly the same kind of act. But Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to realize that what's going on in your imagination is just as much real on how it impacts your life as if you committed the act itself. He's like, he's like I, I know you're thinking about, you know, you're that guy that's sitting here today, no, I'm all about just do it, just do it. Forget all this nonsense about imagination, just get out there and do it. And Jesus is like, no, listen, this is not just about stone tablets, this is also about what's going on inside of your mind. It's not written just in the Ten Commandments, but I'm, I'm concerned about what you're thinking about your life. You see, when the imagination is used on my neighbor's wife, we call it lust. See, that's what that word lust is. It's, it's the word of imagination. It's not that when, when you actually uh, perform something with your neighbor's wife, well, we call that adultery. But Jesus is beginning to equivocate the act with the imagination. He's saying, listen, if you're going around just thinking about God's will is written on stone tablets, he's like, no, it's part of your imagination too. So when we use our imagination for uh, looking at my neighbor's wife, we call it lust. Um, when the imagination is used on my neighbor's stuff, we call it covetousness. Well, on the stones, it's called stealing. But uh, when, we, when we perform it in our minds... And Jesus says, listen, we have another word for the imagination, uh, use of, of being, looking at other people's stuff. It's, it's, it's called covetousness. When we use the imagination on another person's success, we call it jealousy. You know, when we begin to look at the way they look in that dress or the kind of job that they have or the kind of, jo uh, the kind of salary that they have or the car that they drive, Jesus says, listen, what's going on in your imagination is very important to me. You know, of course, if you see them at the party, you're not going to say anything, right? I mean, we're all, we all are fake. I mean, we'll see them at the party. Oh, I see you're driving that new Lexus. I see you got that Land Rover. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's a great car. I'm so happy for you. You deserve it. See, oh, I love it. I love it when people say that to you because you know they're wrestling with what you have. You know, whenever they say, it's kind of like bless your heart kind of thing. It's kind of like, uh, it's like, oh, you deserve that. You know, it's like, oh, you're wrestling with it. And you had to determine whether or not I was worthy of having this car. Well, that's interesting. But it's, it would never say it to them. But Jesus says, like, yeah, I know you saw me at the party and you told them you loved it. And you thought it was great. But you know what? I'm really concerned about what went on in your imagination. 
And that is very real to me. And I'm concerned about what you're thinking. But when my imagination uses the word of God, guess what we call that? We call it faith. When I take the word of God and I implant it in my mind and I begin to meditate on it, think upon these things, all the different functions of that thing we call mind or imagination, whatever facility that God has used, frontal cortex, uh, hippocampus, whatever you want to, however you want to break it down. But when I take the word of God into my mind and I begin to think upon those things, that's called a godly imagination. I begin to think the thoughts of God about the possible realities that could occur for my life if I plan them based upon the word of God. So he wants you to reimagine your life. And some of us here, we're just having a, life is tough. It's tough being single. It's tough being divorced. It's tough waiting on your divorce. It's tough dealing with pain. It's tough waiting for an MRI to come back. It's tough um, sometimes making sure that you continue to be successful. It's tough to try to continue to be number one or whatever the pressure may be in life. And, and life is going to challenge us. But God wants us to move beyond the realm of vain imagination Maybe historic imagination, this is the way I always think about myself, the way I think about my family, the way that I think I'm going to be because I'm at a certain age, this is all that life has to offer. And God wants us to help us reimagine our lives. And he wants us to base it upon his promises. So last week we looked at three kinds of promises and I'll just kind of zing right through them real fast. There's that one promise that God makes to the whole world. The world doesn't have to do anything, God's just promised he's gonna do it and it's going to work out. Okay, God's going to make that promise happen. Then there's the second kind of promise, and that's that promise that God makes to people who he's in relationship with. Okay, that's the second category is people who now know God, are connected to God through a relationship with, with his son. And God says, okay, since we're now in relationship, there are certain things I'm going to deposit in your life and do in your life. You don't even have to do anything. It's just because of the relationship. And we got relationships like that, don't we? That we're going to do regardless whether our, our kids respond or not in certain situations. We're just going to do it for them. We're just going to keep the electricity on. We're just going to keep the, you know, the refrigerator stocked. We're going to continue to just take them to school whether they want to go to school or not because we're in relationship with them. But what we're focusing on is the third kind of promise. And that is a promise that God makes to people he's in relationship with to bring about a new future with their cooperation with their involvement in it. The promises of God are invitations to reimagine the future of your life with divine certainty and your cooperation. So what do I mean by cooperation? I would say it, it, it's kind of like your willingness to take the promise of God to heart, to yield to it, to walk in it, to wait, to wait in it to kind of bring it into your heart, to bring it into your mind, to bring it into your thoughts, to bring it into your imagination, what God says your life can be like, what God wants to do in your life, to dare to revision your life, not based upon, huh, what are the top five things I want to happen in 2020? You know, it's like, no, no, no. I mean, those are really good ideas and you should have some of those kind of resolutions, but let's be clear, they're resolutions, they're not promises. They, they don't have certainty built into them. But what is it that God wants to do in my life? What is it that I know that he'll do in my life if I cooperate with him? It, it involves 
rejecting imaging a future other than the one that God has promised and living in alignment with that. It's like, stop imagining your demise. I cannot tell you how many people that I run into who readily and often imagine their own death. Okay? Now, I know if you're a young person, that's cool that you, you, you're kind of stunned by that. But once you get over 60 and you know that there's only about 20 years left, and, you know, yeah, it's, it's, a, whole, it's a whole new phenomenon. I'm running into baby boomers, and I'm going to be starting a, pass, uh, a podcast called Boomerang. And it's, it's the idea of helping boomers re-envision their lives with the principles of God. Because a lot of us have gotten to the point where we've owned everything, we've done everything, you know, and all of a sudden we find out, wow, uh, it's, it's not working. You know, it's kind of, it doesn't do what I thought it was going to do. Just going back to the gym is not going to change my life. Just losing 10, 10 pounds doesn't fake, fix my relationship with my son who hates me. Uh, you know, not, just because I have money doesn't mean the MRI is not going to say I don't have cancer. So um, God wants to help us envision our lives differently um, and to cooperate with that. So let me be very clear. This has got nothing to do with you being saved. This has nothing to do with you being a child of God. God loves you. And God wants to enter into relationship with you through his son, Jesus Christ. And when we yield to that promise, all that grace and love and belonging is there. Whether you cooperate it or, or, or not. Some people will say, well, can you lose your salvation? I don't know. I know all the theological arguments. But it kind of looks like a promise that if I enter into this promise, God's going to do it whether I cooperate with him or not. That, it's that awesome. It's like, well, that's not right. So you mean to tell me if Hitler was on his deathbed, it's the old, the old one, if Hitler was on his deathbed and he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior, that means he would go to heaven? Yeah, probably. Yeah, that's how cool grace is. That's how, that's how amazing. If that genuinely happened, then that, that promise really happens. But what we're talking about is not whether or not we're going to heaven or not. What we're talking about is what kind of life are we going to experience here? What kind of future? How much, of, how much of heaven are we going to experience on earth before we go? So let me, just for a moment, let me use something from the school of logic that you already know, but maybe just seeing it will help you visualize it. If you're somebody who's in medicine or if you're in um, uh, maybe an attorney or maybe you're a mathematician, you're probably really familiar with this idea, but all of us do it. But sometimes we don't actually see the construction of it and how it plays out. It's called, that some of the promises are like this, it's called the conditional statement. A conditional statement is usually framed this way. It's the if-then proposition. If you do this, then this will occur. Now, I know it's like, well, you're getting really technical and logical here today. It's like, I've been telling you guys, I've been telling you for 20 dang years, the Bible is smart. It is logical. It is not brain-dead faith. It is logical. And so God uses this logical statement, but we all use it. For instance, you probably said to your teenage son, if you do your homework, I'll let you play an hour of video games. You know? You say, wow, all right. 
Um, so therefore, if he does his homework, he does the if part of it. The promise is fulfilled as soon as the condition is met. And here's the thing. You may think, well, that's not evil, is it? I mean, you would hold back something good in order to get him to do something good? Yeah, that's called parenting. So if you're sitting here today and say, well, God's all loving, you're telling me I got to do this if-then thing, what kind of kind God is that? He's a kind parent. That's exactly what he's like. Because he's not trying to get you an if that's not good for you. Even the ifs and the thens are both good for you. And he knows that. So if you're, you're like backing away, it's like, oh, that sounds like God's kind of like playing with us. It's like, no, he's parenting us. And we got to decide whether or not we're going to do the good that God asks in order to experience the good that God wants to give. And I think we all want the good that God has to give. So what I'm trying to do is trying to break up some really bad theology that God just makes everything happen in our lives. You know, well, if God wants this to happen, if God wants this marriage to work out, if God wants me to have a renewed relationship with my children, well, then he's going to have to, you know, if God wants America to become a godly country, if God wants me to have more money, if God wants to, it's like, no. Most of this, God's already laid out, and he's saying to us, I promise this, if you'll get involved in, the, in this, if you'll do your part, I will bring my certainty to bear in your life. So, um, one of the guys that, in the Bible, that it kind of like displays this more than anybody else is a guy named Abraham. I like it. Because God invites him, like he's doing right now with every single one of us here, no matter how bad a culprit you are. See, it's not like victims get to imagine their life only, and a lot of you are victims, and God wants you to imagine a life beyond being a victim or an addict. Or what, uh, but I want to say, if, if, if you're a culprit, you're here. Like, you're a, you're a man who cheated on your wife, and you left your kids 20 years ago, and you didn't pay child support. I'm, I'm, I'm here to dare to tell you that God's inviting you back to the table. So, you know, everybody's, through the grace of God and through a relationship with his son, is given the promise to reimagine what their lives could be if they do it with God. So let me encourage you, no matter where you are, how many things have been wrong, done wrong to you, what kind of family you came from, how broken it was, what kind of loss you personally suffered, God really wants to do something amazing in your life. So Abraham was that guy that he, he picked. God picked Abraham. Abraham didn't pick God, at least not initially. It was kind of like God picks him. And guess what, everybody here? God's picking you. Now we got, we're, we're living in what's called the if-then conditional statement. A lot of Abraham's life has already passed him by, and I hope that encourages you. At 75, I think he'd be considered a late bloomer. So if you're 75 and you think, well, you know, it's just Medicare, your prostate, and retirement, and that's all you got to look forward to. People always look at, when I say the word prostate, they always think I'm like, oh, that was vile. I, you know, I was like, no, I, it, it's, it really is the truth. It's what happens to us at our age. And so we think at 75, well, you can't teach a dog new tricks. And then along, God says, okay, I'll find myself an old dog. I'll find myself somebody that you think I can't do something with. Um, 
I'll do Abraham. I'll, 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 I'll grab this guy. So he goes to Abraham, and Abraham was a late bloomer. But here's something about Abraham. We would have never heard of him if it wasn't for the fact that he was willing to re-envision his life based upon the promise of God. If Abraham said, no thanks, you know, the book of Genesis would have had a story about a guy named Charlie, you know, and God appeared to Charlie and said to Charlie, you know, and if Charlie said yes, this would have been a story about Charlie and the whole nation of Israel, we'd be singing that song, Father Charlie had many sons and many sons had, but you know what I'm saying? So God says, okay, I'm going to invite you back to the table, Abraham. And Abraham said, I'll come back to the table based upon your promises. So seriously, who re-envisions their lives at 75? You know what revisioning looks like in America? A 29-year-old girlfriend and a Harley. Yeah. Yeah, some of, you, some of you ladies are like, yeah, I was married to that jerk. You know? No, seriously. We, we re-envision our lives in so many different ways. And here's God inviting this 70-year-old, 75-year-old man back to re-envision his life. And, and then who's willing to leave everything familiar behind uh, to experience a different future? I think it's a person who's willing to re-envision, re-imagine their lives with God. Let me read you this, uh, just a small part of it. And as I read you this story, I want you to kind of analyze it and see if you can find the if-then construction in it. See, that's why it's so important because most of us Christians have been preached to in this country that there is no if-then construction. Motivational speakers use the gospel and quote the verses of the Bible. Churches are, you know, notorious for like, God, we're all God's children, and God loves all of us, and God wants, you know, it's like, no, there's if-then constructions built into this. Let me just bust one up for you. We're not all God's children. We're all God's creation, but we are not all God's children. You're like, yeah, that sounds unbiblical. No, John chapter 1, to as many as receive him, referring to Jesus, to them he gives the power to become the children of God. Well, what were we before? You know, objects of affection of God. We were also his creation. So uh, let me encourage you, I, I just want to bust up this old mythology, this, this American mythology about how Christianity operates. But I want you to see the if-then construction and tell me if you found it. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, <clears throat> go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who curse, bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, so let me ask you. If Abraham doesn't go, is God going to keep his promise? No, wait a minute, that's not right. No, he's going to keep his promise. It's the construction of the promise that God's going to keep. So if Abraham doesn't go, is he going to become a great and mighty nation? No. It's the if-then construction. If you go, he just didn't put the word there, but he said go. If you follow this command to go, if you're willing to risk reimagining your life based upon my promise, 
I will make you a great and mighty nation. All Abraham has to decide is, is if he's going to do the if part of the equation. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Wow. Once he starts going, you know the promise is going to be fulfilled. He was willing to leave the land of the familiar to travel to the land of strangers. But in the story, there was a call to get out and do. To pursue an ideal greater than himself. Greater than his culture. Greater than his history. What his father had done. He was called to get out and go. And that God would fulfill his promises. And the ideal that he followed was the promise of God. We, uh, we hear something like this, and we just kind of suppose everything for Abraham's life must have gone great after that. You know, because the Bible's not wicked long. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of short. And so it's, it's broken up into these little stories, and it's like, oh, man, he left, he went, and God made him a great and mighty nation. Man, I wish I, I had a life like Abraham. So Abraham gets up and goes... And before any of the promises fulfilled, he has to fight two wars. I mean, and both of them he didn't start, but he has to fight two wars. He compromises a little bit in his character, and he lies to a couple people about his wife. He kind of messes up with his wife a little bit and screws that thing all up and, and kind of gets... Then he has to wait like... Like years, he doesn't have a child. And that seems to be the prerequisite to become a great and mighty nation is to be able to have some offspring. So in the American mindset, and I would say in the American church, we think, well, you know, you grab a hold of the promise of God and, and you try it for a week. You know? I, I, I hear how churches do things, and I try to look at churches, how they do things better, and how I can possibly be better um, at what we do. But um, one of the promises that I've heard pastors using lately is if you tithe, okay, a biblical principle, but they'll make some statement like this. If you tithe for one year, and so if you give 10% of your income to the church for, for a year, and if your life is not financially better, we'll give you all your after one year, we'll give you all your money back. Now, I'm like, oh my gosh, that is such a joke. Okay, first of all, um, they know nobody's going to come up and get their money back, right? I mean, who goes back to a church and say, listen, it didn't work, dude. I want my money back, you know? I wish I could be there when that happened, especially if it was like a millionaire, yeah, I'm looking for my 500,000 back, you know? Um, but no, no. But so they, they present this idea that if you tithe, all your life is going to be wonderful. Oh, keep on gambling. You can do, keep doing that. And that little uh, online porn habit you have, you can keep doing that too. And um, running up your credit cards, oh, no problem, keep doing that. But if you tithe, your finances will be perfect in a year from now. <laughs> See how stupid that is? You know, it's like, and, and that's the way that it's communicated to us, that, you know, that it's, it's, that 
we're going to say in one year your life is going to be better. I can tell you this. If you step out on the promises of God and they're not fulfilled in the time frame that you think, I will know this. If you don't have the promise but you've walked in it, you will have God more than maybe the fulfillment of what you think the promise should be. I will say that. I'm in the middle of that right now. I'm kind of hoping God's going to do something for me and been praying about this thing that I want him to do for me. He hasn't actually done the thing for me. I've imagined what it would be like if he did this thing for me. It's not happening. It could take a couple years. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, so what has God done for you? He, I've, I'm closer to God now than I've ever been in my life. And I have never been in more pain ever in my life. It's like, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, it's a heck of a thing, you know. And if you're an American, you think, well, if I just try God for a week, uh, it will be better. And my marriage is going to be totally transformed. It's not the way it was for Abraham. God gave me this incredible promise, and he had to walk through it. He had to yield to it. He had to walk in it, and he had to wait for it. You think if it's God, it's going to be easy, and it's going to be perfect. I really feel God healing my marriage. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to tell my husband. Yeah, 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 that's not good. Yeah, okay, can I just tell you that's not going to work? You know, it's like you just got to walk out the promises of God in your life. It takes courage to leave the familiar, doesn't it? To leave the way that we normally do things. And I will even say this. It takes courage to leave the familiar when the familiar is pain. Because some of us get so caught in our pain, it's the only familiar thing we got. Some of us get so, we hate somebody so bad that it's like, I can't imagine not hating them. Somebody has victimized us and what they have done to us was so bad that we can't get past what they've done to us and it's like, I can't imagine not being a victim. I can't imagine ever loving my father. I can't imagine not struggling with alcohol. I can't imagine a life, and, and for some of us, the familiar becomes the resentment, the hate, the bitterness. You know, some of us, you know, we hold on to our pain because people give us pity. We find out that the mechanism of pain can actually get you help. And so we hold on to the familiar. It takes courage to do it, even, even after making bad choices. It takes courage to look foolish, to... To, to leave the established and go to the unknown. I'm going to tell you what's, what is going to be your biggest challenge with this God-if-then proposition for life. I know what it is because it's my problem with God's proposition. It is the if-then statement that we all believe. If I do it, then it will make me happy. It's like, I, it's like we can look at a Bible verse, um, like the one we just saw, that God's promises to Abraham. Did the word happy appear in that set of verses at all? I'll make you a great and mighty nation. Did the word pleasure appear in there at all? Um, I didn't say, did I see anything in there that, you know, you're not going to have a bad MRI? that you're not gonna lose your job, that you're not gonna fight against somebody. 
that you're not going to make. I didn't see any of that in that promise. But what we do is we look at the scriptures with this pursuit of happiness. It's like, oh, I've got to get a hold of this first. It's going to make me happy. And it's like, oh, my goodness. You begin looking in the scripture, and it's not there. I mean, it really is. Not that God, you know, you read the, you read the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil. I mean, the word blessed is probably the closest thing that we get to happy, and God associates it with rejection. I, and I know some of you are, are like, oh, crap. Uh, I, okay, and I get it. But until you realize the level of monster you can be and how difficult the earth is to live on, you will not begin to look for the right answer from God. We will always be looking for happiness to be the answer for everything. When sometimes just peace is the answer. Character is the answer. Compassion is the answer. Having a sound mind might be the answer. You know, we, we, this is, it's, if I do it, God, then it will make me happy. Or here's, here's kind of like the younger brother version of that same kind of if-then construction. If it makes me happy, then I'll do it. That's American. Okay? I don't mean to be busting on Americans, but that's all I am. Uh, but that's American, is that we want the then before we do the if. God, if you make me happy, that, then I'll do it. How many millionaires, wannabe millionaires, have I talked to over the last 20 years of being a pastor that have told me, Pastor Paul, if you just pray for this deal, I'll be able to bless the church. I'll be able to give to the church. You know, um, I'll be able to fix this flooding. If I, this deal goes through, this, if you'll just pray for me, you know, I'll be able to give. And it's like, you know, I'll follow God as soon as he performs that miracle and fixes my life. I'll serve more as soon as I get more time. Where is more time coming from? I mean... The whole time dilation and the Big Bang, I mean, I think there's no more time going to be invented. You know, unless the gravitational forces around the earth changes, time's going to flow the same way that it's flowing right now. Okay, but I'll serve when I have more time. The if-then construction. Um, how about this? I will give more when I have more money. I'll obey more when it aligns with my happiness. That's what we think the Bible and relationship with God is. That's going to be your, and I'll say it this way. The biggest challenge to God's, to God's stuff in general, and, and I know you're like, dude, you're, you're really screwing up if you want to build a big church. I mean, you really are, you really suck at this. And, and, and you know what? Uh, when you are in pain, you look for what's real. I mean, so, so let me just say, that's what's moved me in this direction. Uh, I'm not looking for a solution. I'm looking for real. And so it made me go back to my scriptures and like, okay, what's real? Um, so what's realer than my pain? And so, so the biggest challenge to this God stuff will not be the sadness or the pain you're in. That's not going to be your biggest challenge. I think it will be the kind of happiness you want to be in. That's going to be your challenge to God. 
that we all have a level of happiness that we think we should be in and that God should put us in. And that's what's going to get in our way. Not our pain, not our sadness, not our broken families, not the victimizations that have happened to us, not our addictions. It will be the kind of happiness that we think we should be in. The kind of then that God should deliver to our lives. You know, in America, positive emotion is normally associated falsely with movement forward. When we say to somebody, how's your life going? You know what they usually associate the answer with? And it's, the numbers are staggering on this. Their, their metric of determining whether or not their lives are moving forward is the level of how happy they are. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and, and say, and it's very rare, it's like, how's your life going? Oh, you know, I, turns out I got cancer and lost my job. You know, the dog died. But you know what? I'm in a better place today than I've ever been in my life. You know, doesn't that sound crazy? Well, that's Abraham. But in America, we associate moving forward with our lives with being happy. And that's our metric. If I'm happy, I'm moving forward. Likewise, may, uh, many of us make moving forward predicated upon the emotion of being happy. I'll move forward if it will make me happy. We're addicted to this. I mean, we are literally constitutionalized to this. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's in our constitution. Not the pursuit of character, not the pursuit of compassion, not the uh, pursuit of truth, but the pursuit of happiness. Is that ethics will be based upon, not science, not based upon theology or a good philosophical argument, not in America anymore. It will all, if it makes you happy to think you're this or that or to do that or this or to break that, then, you know, follow your heart. Whatever makes you happy. I had somebody come up to me, and I loved it. I loved it. She asked me a really tough question. She's new to Christianity, and she said, so you're telling me I listened to this motivational speaker, very famous. I listened to this motivational speaker, very famous. And then she said, so, you know, so what you're telling me is these motivational speakers say that you stay in a relationship as long as the relationship actualizes who you are as a human being and makes you happy. And that if you're not, if that is not occurring, then it's time for divorce to occur. And she said to me, so you're saying that's not the case. I could not jump out of my throat fast enough to give her a heck yeah, you know, and I pointed to the cross. You know, I don't think that made him happy, but it raised everybody from the dead who will raise from the dead, you know, and so this is really kind of a different way of thinking for us. Sometimes we associate rightness of our ethics and behavior based upon positive emotion. And I, I found this little psychological study who said this. Studies have shown that most people make their worst decisions when they're happy. Yeah. When you get those endorphins all buffed up and you, you know, you've just 
got a new deal at work and you got a new promotion and you got a new girlfriend, a new guy in your life and, and everything's just going good. They studies show that people make some of the worst decisions in their life while they're happy. You know, when you're in pain, you know, you could say, hey, you want one of these new things? I'm like, I don't give a flip about that. You know, what do I need more debt for, man? I'm hurting. You know, so it's, it's really this idea about, about getting the answer that we think we should get. So who am I to reimagine my new future? And I want to close with this. Uh, you may think you don't deserve a new future. You may think your victimization doesn't allow you to have a new future. You think because so-and-so was your father and your family fell apart when you were younger, you don't get a new future. You think because maybe you're gender confused that you don't get a new future. You think because you committed the crime and you ran off on your family and your kids all hate you, that you don't get it. You're definitely not a getting a new future. Well, I'm here to tell you this, that if you're in relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, you're a child of God. And what that means is that God's promises have been given to you with authority to dream a new future. Every one of us who are in relationship with God, God says, listen, your life doesn't have to end the way that you think it is. So what you're 75 and you're a late bloomer? So what you came from that kind of family? I see that thing that happened in your life that derailed you. You know, I saw that bad thing that happened to you. But that doesn't have to be the way that you imagine the future. You don't have to get Botox and pulled and lifted, you know, and all that other stuff. And God's like, that's a lie. You know, you can do it, but that's not going to change your future. It's not going to make your husband love you more. It's not going to make your life work out, but his promises will. And I want to give you today's promise of Romans 8, 28. And I want you to see the conditional statement built into it. Because we quote this all the time. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. How many times has this verse been quoted to us? Remember, God causes all things to work together for good. That's what we, we get the then preached to us. No, it says, it says, we know that for those who love God, those who partner with God, those who yield to God, those who walk with God, those who wait on God, we know that all things with absolute certainty, that all things will work together for good in their lives. So if you're not in a relationship with God, I think it's pretty evident, you need to download a new song into your life. You need to change your mixtape. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if we believe upon him and in him, that we will not perish, but we'll have eternal life. Let me encourage you. 
That's a good place to start. That's a new mixtape. Let me encourage you to dare to step out. So if you're a late bloomer, you're not too old to imagine. If you're afraid of the unfamiliar, pray for courage today. If you're in love with the familiar, may God help you today through his Holy Spirit to see that the familiar will not take you into the future without God. You need courage? I'm here to tell you God will help you. Um, I'm in a moment of courage in my own personal life. There is a, from my back, a spine injury. There's a medicine that I'm taking. It's, it's not a fun medicine. They don't give you uh, uppers anymore. Um, you know, they just don't prescribe that stuff anymore. And it's like, it's a really bad time to have a spine injury. Um, and so uh, I got this other medicine that they've put me on and I've been on for three months. And the number one side effect is suicidal thoughts and depression. And it helps about maybe 25% of my pain and I've been taking it and, and hating life at the same time. And, and so um, I'm like, God, my imagination has been taken over by this, by this medicine. Um, I'm gonna come off this because I know you want me to be renewed in the spirit of my mind. I'm coming off this medicine and that means all my pain's coming back. So I hope, I, I'm asking you to give me the courage to be able to be a man who either lives with the healing or has enough courage and strength to live with pain. But I don't want to imagine the end of my life ever again. So I'm willing to take the, the next step. My situation may be totally small compared to yours. No matter how big or small the issue may be, it takes courage to imagine a future different than the ones that we imagine. But God says, go out and walk with me and I'll take care of your future. So let me encourage you to dare to step out today as we receive communion, as you write your prayer request and pin it to the cross, or receive prayer with one of our pastors, don't stay with your, where you are. Go out from the familiar. Father, we dare today, we ask today through the power of your Holy Spirit that you will enable us to live a life beyond all that we imagine, all that we think, that God, that you will help us to see our futures with the mind of God. Your word says, I has not seen nor his ear heard nor is it entered into the mind of men the things that God has prepared for us. But by your spirit, you make those things known to us. So God, I pray for every woman, every man, every marriage, every single person, every family, every culprit, every victim in this room that they may begin to see through the Holy Spirit the things that can be for their lives. Let me invite you into this moment of hope and reimagining based upon God's word.